This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 31st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. When does your own attorney have to give evidence against you? When it's more than possible you've used that attorney to perpetrate a crime or fraud. Paul Rosenzweig is a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a contributor to the Lawfare blog. We spoke earlier this week about the troubles besetting Donald Trump and his former attorney, Michael Cohen. When Donald Trump, as he is oft wont to do, uh, takes to Twitter to uh, talk about, for example, don't hire Michael Cohen as your lawyer. Um, it, it it seems strange that the president's personal lawyer uh, is, you know, now essentially a part of the prosecution in a sense. So what do we know about the, how we, th- how ought we to think about uh, crimes potentially committed by uh, a president and attorney-client privilege. Well, um, let's let's step through it in 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 three pieces. First, let's let's all agree that this is one of the rare instances that Donald Trump is right. You know that Michael Cohen. You should not hire Michael Cohen. He's not a great lawyer. Um, but let's kind of step through it in in a, in a few pieces. Um, first, let's begin with the idea that privileges against testifying truthfully are the exception, not the rule. The general rule is that uh, grand juries investigating crime in the federal system and in state systems as well, but I'll restrict myself to a federal system, are entitled to every man's evidence. That's the quote. Uh, and apologies for using the traditional gendered term, but, but that's the way it, it's phrased. Uh, and the idea here, of course, is that the authority of the government to investigate violations of criminal law is pretty much plenary and pretty much unbridled uh, when it comes to seeking the truthful testimony of percipient witnesses of whom an attorney might very well be one. Um, So the second step is to ask, you know, why is uh, an attorney privileged not to disclose uh, the information that's provided to him by a client in a, in a criminal investigation. And the traditional justification is, is often thought of as twofold. Um, the first is uh, a justification that would apply to other confidential relationships like uh, doctor-patient or penitent-priest or psychoanalyst, which is that we want to foster uh, some confidential communications because they advance higher values than the search for truth. And, uh, and so we, we privilege them in order not to put them at risk. Uh, it, it, in some ways, that's really saying that the second order benefits of having a functioning adversarial s- system with criminal defense lawyers, for example, is greater than the immediate uh, first order benefits of having truth in a particular case. So we, uh, we do like, we do this. We have this system in place so that defendants can receive a proper representation from their own attorneys. That's right. And in and in the criminal case, unlike say uh, a doctor patient, uh, there's a second or there's a second justification, which is the it, that it's a buttress to the constitutional privilege against self incrimination, which would be pretty useless if. Everything I told my attorney, he then turned around and could be forced to tell the U.S. government. 
Um, so, so in in the attorney-client context, especially in the criminal um, uh, case, it really has two pillars. Whereas for doctor-patient or husband-wife, it's it's fostering. It's just the social value of fostering confidentiality in in bedroom conversations with your husband or your wife. Um, so, so, but. It's important to begin uh, with the understanding that those privileges are in derogation of the first general view of seeking the truth in and, and justice in the criminal system. So that brings us to the third step, which is the crime fraud exception, which is an exception to the exception, uh, if you will. And this is the idea that um, the, the privilege, the attorney-client privilege in derogation of the truth only goes as far as its justification which is to say it only goes as far as its, as its argument that it's necessary to give the defendant good representation in court, as you put it. Uh, it isn't necessary or useful or thought justified if the, if the client uses the attorney to help him commit the crime. So, so if I ask you um, to help me draft an affidavit and I tell you, uh, to write in the affidavit that I have uh, never met Stormy Daniels. And then uh, you file that affidavit in some court proceeding. Uh, even if you as the attorney think that it's a truthful statement, uh, if it turns out that in fact I have met Stormy Daniels uh, on many occasions, I have used your lawyerly services uh, to perpetrate a fraud on the court a fraud that isn't as well a crime, uh, the crime of false statements, perjury of some sort. And so the attorney can be compelled in that instance to give truthful testimony and say um, that this is what Paul told me. He told me he never gave – he never met Stormy Daniels. I didn't make it up. I didn't write it down as a fiction. He told me that that was the truth. Um, and he was lying. And, th and then the conclusion that he was lying would follow therefrom. Um, so, th so the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege is really not so much an exception as a return uh, to the general idea that the truth will out and is the objective of the justice system. And uh, clients should not be allowed to use the cloak of attorney-client secrecy to perpetrate their fraud, either on their courts or, or on uh, the victims of their crimes. So what have you seen in either public coverage of this or some leaks from either the investigation or from the White House that indicates to you that this is either significant or not significant, that this particular attorney has been uh, given immunity? It seems clearly to be the case that Mike, Michael Cohn, as Trump's personal attorney, was the repository of any number of communications from Donald Trump that would, absent some exception, be secret. And that Cohn would, in the normal course, be justified in responding to requests to repeat them from the government, say, uh, I don't have to and you can't make me. And he would win. The fact that he has instead um, said, yes, I'm happy to tell you, <laughs> and here it is, um, suggests 
either that he's in complete derogation of his own lawyerly duties and he's singing even though he shouldn't be, unlikely, but especially because the government would not likely be a party to that, or that the government has made a showing uh, to a judge uh, that uh, Cohn's clients, here presumably Mr. Trump, have used his services to engage in illegal activity. Um, the one that we, the one uh, significant uh, allegation of illegal activity that we know of from Cohn's public statements is that he uh, was the conduit for hush money payments to both Stormy Daniels and at least one other uh, woman uh, with the intention of keeping that information from the electorate prior to the 2016 election. That is plausibly, um, though not decisively, it's not, you know, it's not, cert not certain at this point, but that's plausibly alleged to be a conspiracy to violate the, the uh, election laws of the United States, most particularly the, the, uh, the transparency ones that would otherwise have put any such payment into Donald Trump's public FEC, Federal Election Commission disclosures. Uh, and so that would be a classic case, if true, of a client, in this case Trump, using a lawyer, in this case uh, Cohn, and his services uh, through the payment of money to Stormy Daniels and, and as we've been told, the negotiation of a non-disclosure agreement, uh, all sorts of lawyerly activity uh, for criminal purposes. Hence the crime fraud exception, hence Cohn's authorization to speak about it truthfully uh, to prosecutors when compelled to do so in a grand jury. Uh, Gene Healy of the Cato Institute has uh, made a case essentially on both sides of the idea that uh, hush money payments paid to uh, Stormy Daniels constitute uh, some sort of uh, impeachable act. Um, how do you evaluate that? Well. Um we're kind of transitioning here to what does it mean to have engaged in a high crime and misdemeanor? Uh, clear, I mean, you can be impeached for bribery, treason, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Clearly, paying uh, Stormy Daniels isn't being bribed for your official acts, and it isn't treason, so it's got to fit in the other category. If a it few fits. Things, if it fits. If, 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 if it fits at all. Um, a few things we know for sure. Um, first, uh, from English history, we know that criminality is not a necessary part of impeachment. You can be impeached for misconduct that is not criminal in nature. Uh, uh, and so it is possible that uh, the House of Representatives could determine that this sort of hush money payment is impeachable even if it turns out not to be a criminal violation of the FEC law. Um, second, uh, we know uh, that the phrase misdemeanors uh, was not used by the English back at the time of the framing in the same way that we use it now to mean petty crimes. We know that it was intended to mean uh, uh, acts of signif uh, uh, public wrongs of significance. So we also know that they sort of didn't think that things like jaywalking or uh, speeding in today's parlance would be uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, they would fall outside of it. Um, uh, third, um, 
we know that the House of Representatives does not have to be guided by and has not in the past always considered itself guided by uh, British impeachment history in determining what is an impeachable offense. Gerald Ford said very famously uh, that impeachment was uh, an impeachable offense was whatever a majority of the House of Representatives said it was. Uh, and uh, we have seen in, in history uh, at least a few instances in which uh, the House's uh, impeachment has been thought to be a politicized uh, indictment rather than a, a genuine impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. And the Senate has uh, actually rejected that. Uh, the most famous, oldest example of that is the impeachment of Supreme Court Justice um, uh, Samuel Chase for essentially being a Federalist uh, in, a, in an era where the Congress was now Democratic-Republican. And the Senate um, uh, uh, excused him by a wide margin uh, and, and rejected the House's impeachment. For my money, for my money, um, I would say that efforts to suborn the election laws of the United States are pretty high on my list of high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, even if not criminal in nature, uh, because the integrity of the electoral process is at the very core of uh, American governance uh, in ways that are a lot more fundamental than, say, the president's personal um, uh, uh, activities uh, uh, would be. So I wouldn't impeach him for necessarily for having sex with Stormy Daniels. Uh, I would impeach him for uh, concealing hush, hush money payments about that from the public, a topic that might be germane to their decision making. And uh, to the extent that the House of Representatives makes a decision about what is and is not uh, an impeachable offense and is willing to follow through on a vote on that, to the extent that they want that to matter pretty much at all, the Senate would have to agree. Well, that yes it's, and that, no. That it, that it fits within that category of offenses and is worthy of a conviction. Yes. I mean, in, in order to have um, full effect... It would have to um, – a conviction would require two-thirds of the Senate to concur in the, in the House's judgment. But you know, that, I think, abstracts impeachment from its political setting a little too much. Uh, presidents are uh, very legacy conscious and uh, presidents who are impeached, their legacy bears that mark no matter what. Uh, whatever you think of Bill Clinton, whether you think he was a great president or a poor one, he will also always be the president who was impeached for lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, and so, you know, the mark of impeachment uh, resonates politically uh, quite a bit. I mean, to stay with the Clinton example, Al Gore has, has long said that he thought that Clinton's conduct was what caused him to lose the election to, to George Bush. I mean, you know, that's a counterfactual. You can't prove it, but but that was his opinion. So lots of effects from impeachment other than conviction and even in the absence of conviction. Given what we know now um, uh, and what the president believes uh, his powers are, uh, what do you think uh, would follow from uh, the president's attempt to either 
uh, fire Jeff Sessions or Rod Rosenstein or Robert Mueller? Well, uh, I think the law is is pretty clear that he has the authority to fire them. You know, Velnon. Uh, there's a case from the 1920s called Myers versus the United States that tested whether or not uh, Congress could limit the power of a president to fire, in that case, a uh, a postmaster, uh, first class postmaster. And the court said, I, I think, you know, somewhat controversially, that he had he had that authority in almost unlimited degree. Uh, they took some of that back in a later case called Humphrey's Executor, which involved an independent agency with quasi-legislative functions, the the um, uh, FTC, and uh, and uh, but but it's pretty clear that. Sessions, Rosenstein, and Mueller, as prosecutors, wield exclusively executive power and are therefore uh, well within the president's um, authority to fire. Um, uh, Nobody thinks that Nixon lacked the power to order the Department of Justice to fire Archibald Cox. Um, They just remember it rightly as a political disaster for the president. But nobody says he he uh, he couldn't. In fact, an interesting little historical tidbit: um, you'll recall that uh, uh, Elliot Richardson was the attorney general, and William Ruckelshaus was the deputy attorney general, and they both would not want to um, uh, did not want to fire Archibald Cox. Richardson had made a personal promise to Archibald Cox that he would only fire him for extraordinary improprieties. And he'd made the same promise to uh, the Senate as part of his confirmation. So he was bound by a personal promise that limited the president's executive authority. So when faced with the order to fire Cox, he, he said his personal promise you know, uh, bound him just as much and that uh, as a matter of conscience, he had to resign. Nixon then turned to Ruckelshaus and said, fire him. And Ruckelshaus said, I don't want to. I resign too. And Nixon said, no, you can't resign. You're fired. Um, because rightly, I think, Nixon, uh, Nixon's lawyers, right, recognized that Ruckelshaus, unlike uh, Richardson, didn't have any ground for refusing a lawful presidential order. And so rather than resigning, he was fired, um, as was Cox uh, and as would be you know, Sessions, Rosenstein, and or Mueller. So the real answer is how would the political system react to that? In Nixon's case, the pressure was so great that, you know, within a short matter of time, he was he uh, was forced to allow the appointment of Leon Jaworski, who, who had in effect much greater independence than Cox. And uh, uh, whether or not that's what happens to Mr. Trump is, you know, to be determined, but it's mostly to be determined by the House and Senate members rather than and and the and the American public rather than by law. And it's interesting when and people talk. Well, this is a legal question. This is not a political question. But of course, they're all political questions. Right. The other thing, though, that's worth answer, asking, which is quite interesting, is um, there's a bit of a so what to it. I mean, so what if he fires Mueller or all of them and goes down to Mueller? I mean. What happens next? One possibility we've already talked about is that 
public pressure requires him to uh, uh, the pres the Trump administration to appoint another special prosecutor, right? A second possibility is that the investigations continue, but they get farmed out to the U.S. attorney's offices, all of whom haven't been fired. For example, firing Mueller would have no effect at all on the Cohn investigation because that's already been uh, hived off to the Southern District of New York. And you can't fire the entire Southern District, no matter how much you want to. Uh, the, uh, so that, that portion of the investigation would continue. And there's you know, probably good reason to think that, say, the pending trial of Paul Manafort would be prosecuted by the same prosecutors just under the authority of the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, uh, where, where it's supposed to start in two weeks if the firing happened today. Uh, so the only way to actually achieve the president's goal would be not just to fire Mueller, but for, the, for whoever replaced Sessions and, and Rosenstein to then order that all of the investigation be shut down, that FBI resources and DOJ investigative resources no longer examine uh, Mr. Cohn, uh, no longer examine uh, Russian collusion, not try that indictment of the Internet Research Agency, not try that indictment of the 12 GRU um, uh, military officers that's been returned. That'd be a pretty strong frickin' step, wouldn't it? Uh, that would generate even more political dissonance. And then the last twist, of course, is that President Trump only controls uh, the federal government. Uh, there's nothing that I know of that would stop the uh, Manhattan District Attorney from picking up uh, the fraud aspects of, of Mr. Cohn's case, uh, with many of which, though not all, but many of which no doubt violate uh, New York state law. Likewise, Mr. Manafort in Virginia, and so on and so on. Paul Rosenzweig is a contributor to the Lawfare blog. He's also a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and when you think about it, say, Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.